Welcome to today's episode of The Square. As you can tell, we are in a little bit different setting. You might have gotten a sneak peek at some of the episodes that Poonam has been hosting, and she's done an amazing job. Um, But this is my first episode of The Square on the new set. I'm really excited to be joined by Chuck Armstrong, who is our design director. There will be more coming on uh, some of the changes that are happening at The Square. I'm really excited to share that. But today, today we're focusing on you, Chuck, mm-hmm. and you—you you really set the design direction and 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 our our intent as a company. Right. So let's talk a little bit about background. Tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about when you first knew you wanted to be an architect. Oh, <laughs> I—it's it, hard for me to remember when I didn't. Really? But yeah, because I was maybe in the fourth grade. And, and became aware of the of the developing Dallas skyline yeah. in the middle 1960s. Because you grew up here. Oh, yeah. I yeah. was born and raised, lived here all my life in Dallas. And uh, it just became an f- obsession, a fascination of mine. My mother worked downtown. Uh, you know, I saw all these buildings happening. I would go have lunch with her at the top of her Mercantile National Bank building <laughs> in the executive dining room when I was a small child. And uh, it just became this obsession. And so I went into it in high school, in fact. And, uh, and then obviously... That early, you yeah, already knew. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was in the 10th grade when I got into architectural courses. That actually took up half my day. So oh. I, I was fully immersed in architecture. For, I guess, well, how old are you then? 14, 15 yeah. years old. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's been my whole life, actually. Was there, you know, a lot of architects kind of realize that they have that passion because they love to draw or yes. because they have this idea of composition or whatnot. Is that, were those all true? Was there one thing that kind of stood out as something that you were like, oh, I'm really good at this? No, it, it, was, it was that, yeah, I mean, all those things apply. I was, I was interested in drawing from a very early age, and I did it all the time, but I drew buildings. Huh. I mean, I don't know, little kids, do they draw buildings or do they draw, well, they draw their house, right? Their little chimney. And <laughs> with the, little, the stick with figures the around smoke, it. With yeah. the funny smoke coming out of the chimney if they even have one. Anyway, uh, it was more than that. I was always drawing the Dallas skyline and, you know, observing things around me. So you started kind of taking some of these architecture classes in the 10th grade and then graduated and went to? Well, when I, I, I went to UT Arlington for two years and commuted, and I really didn't like the back and forth. I, mm. My parents live in East Dallas on the east side of White Rock Lake, and so it was a long drive yeah. into school for 8 o'clock history class, which was good for <laughs> catching up on sleep. But um, I, I went to Austin after okay. those two years and, uh, and finished my degree in three and a half years uh, down there. And it's a much better school uh, anyway. Yeah. And, you could actually have a real college experience as opposed to the commuter experience. So. Did you, I'm curious, did you intern anywhere during that time? Or mm-hmm. did you... Yeah, I worked for a small firm in Austin for a while doing very thankless tasks. I, I drew and erased a parking garage for the for the Austin Police Department about oh. five or six times because they were very disorganized, the people yeah. who were giving me my instructions. so. I guess at an early age, having that experience, it gave me the uh, the appreciation for having your thoughts well organized. Yeah. So you didn't waste a lot of time. So where was your where was your first real job as an architect? Oh, oh well, yeah, I, I would discount you know anything in college. I yeah. don't think of those as real jobs. Um, my first real job was actually with a firm called Parkey and Partners here in Dallas. 
And I was only there for three months when a, a young fellow named Larry Good said, hey, um, he said, come have a drink with me this afternoon. <laughs> I said, sure. So I go down to have a drink with him over, in, over by the train station. The offices were actually in Union Station. And we were at a hotel across the street, and he said, well, I quit my job today, and I'm going to start a new firm, and I want you to come with us. Huh. And us was five people. And that firm is now good Fulton Farewell, GFF. Uh, as they now are known, and uh, that was my first real job. So my first real job was short-lived and was kind of fraught with a lot of insecurity, having a brand-new baby, yeah. having a, a house that I you know, was renting. I mean, we, we went from you know bohemian college kids to very suburban <laughs> Dallasites <laughs> literally overnight. With bills and everything and with, else. You know, and I'm yeah. like, what's happening here? So anyway, that was stressful, yeah. <laughs> and it was extraordinarily successful. Uh, so, that firm. So, so then, um, how long were you with, with that firm? About, oh, golly, that's a good question. It's been a long time ago, my friend. <laughs> Decades now. Uh, probably seven years, I want to say. I was with them for seven years. And then with the upheavals uh, and, the, and the recession of the late 80s, mm -hmm. when the stock market really crashed yeah. in 1987, things got tense. Yeah. The firm had to cut itself in half, you know, shrink by half. Uh, and then I was approached by uh, my next boss, actually, to join HOK. Okay. And, I, and I was with HOK for nine years, thereabouts. So at, at Larry's firm and then at HOK, what were some of the flavors of architecture that you did? Well, in my first gig as an architect, uh, you know, when I was really designing buildings and doing things uh, that were my, my work as right. an author, okay, as opposed to just, you know, doing tasks for others. Sure. Uh, it was largely uh, strip retail and neighborhood shopping centers, okay. which, you know, I, I came to realize very quickly that it wasn't really truly architecture in the sense that it was a shell. It didn't have an interiors. It was mom and pop shops and restaurants. You didn't know who that would be. There, there was a certain amount of flexibility that had to be designed into those buildings. You were basically creating a foundation so, so, for someone else to do things. Yeah, and of so it. you were creating really a stage set. Got it. And the buildings don't live long. And I mean, although I could take you on a drive and show you 50 of them, yeah. <laughs> but how many of them are recognizable? I've had many buildings that have been demolished mm -hmm. now because that's how long I've been at this. And those, like I said, those buildings are really temporary in a nature. They're, tempor they're, they're sure. temporary warehouses of land, if you want to look at them that way. And I, I think that a lot of that work is, is due for redevelopment now, right now, yeah. because the real estate's so valuable. And the area, our area, DFW at least, is so much more populous and so much more interconnected. So is, were you also doing that when you went to HOK? No, not at all. No, okay. I did shopping malls and then, and then quickly got into corporate headquarters. And so I did a big project for MCI. Uh, it was the first Build-A-Suit that the Staubach company ever did. That really? Roger and his minions did. And it was because Roger had a relationship with the chief engineer, I think it was, and actually maybe the CFO of MCI, Telecommunications, they were all Naval Academy buddies. And so that's how he got that job. And he gave it to us, and, and it was a huge building, and we did it in record, ridiculous record time. What was and, it that uh, stood out? I mean, it, with the experience that you had, granted, you had your own projects, but that's, they were 
they were both, I guess, different and similar to a corporate headquarters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, they were corporate headquarters of, of a sort. And then after I did that building, uh, I did Exxon Mobil's corp. Well, Mobil came along later. It was for Exxon solely sure. up in Las Colinas. And uh, that project occupied years of my life, actually. And then also in those years, I did an awful lot of travel. I, I worked in Mexico. I worked in Taiwan, Japan. Malaysia, Indonesia, doing these, uh, Dubai, doing these huge mixed-use projects that are really not very common in the United States, but they are common in some of the big mega cities like Jakarta, Manila, uh, Hong Kong, and so on and so forth. So I got to be an expert at that building type. What is it, what is it that kept you coming back to the well for the mixed-use? I mean, that's a, that's a fair amount Just, of travel. It was too much, and I and I had four kids. Eventually, you know, by nineteen ninety one, we had four kids, so it was exhausting. Yeah, <laughs> and I was a stranger in my own house, and yeah. that's when I got reflective on what I'd been doing. It was successful; I was doing fine. Uh, I had all kinds of offers to do all kinds of things, but I just wanted to do something simpler. Mm-hmm. So I approached Corgan and said, you think we could work a deal out? And yeah. Jack did. And uh, without knowing what he was doing, or I was, frankly, what I was doing, yeah. it was a huge experiment, and it was a huge risk uh, above, and, above and beyond all. It was a gigantic risk because this firm, although it had been around for a long time, was a fairly small kind of workaday practice uh, with with a great reputation for client service, but not much of a client, uh, a reputation for design. And, and so, so that was, was like almost 30 years ago, right? Not 25. 25 yeah, years ago. Yeah, that's 25 okay. years ago. It was 90, 1997, yeah. So I want to come back to your family in a second, but but I'm curious when you, to your to your point, when you, when you joined Corrigan with this idea to bring a more design-centric focus to it, mm-hmm. how do you... How do you start? How do you go about that? Do good work. I mean, it. You know, we can get real technical on on you know Excel, which you know a lot of people at Corgan love to do this. Mm-hmm. Very analytical, and, and uh, you know, there's a, there's a tendency here to want to write things down and enumerate things, and you know, yeah, you can do that. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what your process is as long as the product holds up. And I've always been a believer that the product holds up when it's being recognized by the broader profession. Uh, we've got to give the profession some credit of, of, of a meritocracy within it. And I'm, sure. now I'm talking on a national basis. Sure. So, you know, if, if some of your very respected peers tell you that work is good, or if, you know, significant editors and publications come to you and say, let's publish the work, let's do the work, uh, that's one way for validation. Another one is just through competition and winning the work, and that's really what happened for me and for us as an organization when we won our role on Terminal D at DFW Airport. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a very fraught, competitive situation with differing parties, the airline American on one side and DFW on the other, and they had opposing views. And it was a great debate, and, and American and us with them prevailed in, the, in that conversation, and, and we, we kind of cemented our role on that job. How do you, when you think about creating a design that is, um, you know, uh, to your point, kind of peer, uh, not approved, but peer supported, mm-hmm. yeah. um, 
and balancing that with, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of Corgan's clients and I, one kind of recurring mm-hmm. theme that I hear is, is that it's a place that reflects us. <laughs> so how do you balance those two things of having something that is well designed, but also is something that is well reflective of a particularly on a corporate headquarters of a company's culture, et cetera. Well, you talk to them about that, you know, uh, and, and, you know, it's really interesting the the level of engagement you'll get with different corporations because they're all different. There no two of them are alike in their approach and their interaction with an architect mm. or a developer if there's one or a, or a, a construction manager if there's one involved, right? Because, sure. you know, it's a team right. that's putting together these big, big jobs. And so it's just a matter of how much are they willing to invest the time to do something that, yeah, and you have to understand this, that's not a part of their day jobs. Right. Right? That's why you're hired. Right. (laughs) They need the, well, of course, but they they need the building to do their stuff. Right. But they've never necessarily been asked to participate in the front end visioning and, and, uh, you know, problem seeking, just to use an older term that we go through to sort of analyze, well, what's right for you? And uh, we do it through a number of different techniques. Uh, It could start like on Exxon. I mean, it it was just a simple interview with one person because it was a building for one person Mm. who was an absolute dictator and an autocrat in that company. Uh, And so we all knew, and it was told us just straight up at that, in that instance, that it was for one guy. And so that's that's how that went down. Now on Toyota, which is more recent. Yeah. On the other hand, there were 150 people involved. Yeah. And Lindsay and I and the team, we all stood up and we went through a whole series of exercises. You know, talk to us about the attributes. What does he want to look? We showed them images of projects across the spectrum, recent projects in in the corporate space. You know, that were kind of kind of uh, ran the gamut from very conservative to crazy. Yeah. Because right now there's no. <laughs> In, in architecture, there's really no prevailing ism out there as a stylistic move. Thank goodness. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good thing. Uh, and anything, frankly, is possible. You can build just about anything, uh, provided you have the funds. Yeah, and, fair and enough. And so, you know, it's not like it was back in, say, the 60s and 70s when, you know, well, for the next 10 years, we will be doing brutalism. You, yeah. you know, and, and, and I'm the architect and I know best and that's what you're getting. Right. Because that's it, literally the way the architect, that architecture was practiced uh, probably up into the 90s, uh, frankly. Is, so. is there, I'm curious, you know, with take, thinking of Toyota and, and having been kind of, uh, on the edges of that project, they uh, I heard multiple times that they think of themselves not necessarily as a car company, but as a technology company. Right. And I wonder, is is the practice of the architecture, the process of the visioning and whatnot, it, it almost seems kind of like it's a self-discovery yes. that the company doesn't normally get to do. Well, you know, they they may. Yeah, okay. And, and I've worked for all the big airlines and various mm-hmm. things. I mean, I, I, I cite uh, some of the work that Delta would do with their branding people. And, and it has to do with the way they run their company and their interface to their clients, you know, their passengers. Sure. They're very thoughtful about that. Yeah. But they're kind of rare in, mm. in that sense, at least as they conveyed it to us when we were also realizing our role as architects on their behalf 
in serving their their passengers, their customers, and how all that dialogue would happen. But that was rare. Yeah. Most people, no, not at all, not at all. They hadn't thought about it. I mean, they may think about advertising, but that's about either a product or a service, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with what's going to transpire in a building you do, which is essentially creating an environment for them to do their best work and be their best people. So that's really our job, at least in the, in the corporate in the corporate realm. So speaking of the corporate realm, you know, as we've talked, you've had, uh, you've worked in a lot of different sectors with aviation all, and transportation, yeah, hotels, education sure. across the board. Yeah. Do you have a favorite? I get that it's kind of like asking you to pick a favorite child. <laughs> or is well, there things that stand out about, oh, sure. you know, certain ones that you like? Uh, you know, I don't. I, I don't have a, a favorite. I, I can tell you that, you know, with no qualms, I've kind of found myself fatigued in some of these in some of these areas. You know, it's just how many times can you rethink mm-hmm. a fresh way to do the same thing Over for again. the hundredth, yeah. whatever it may be. Uh, airport terminals are, they always have been my favorite, frankly, since you asked. Uh, just because of the role they play in the life of a city or a mm. region, right? They are the gateway, the the, you know, the front door. They are your first impression, oftentimes. Yeah. Whether you look at the building or not, I think subliminally you're you're thinking about it sure. when you arrive, right? Uh, so those are I can't overstate how important they are. I mean, on the flip side, just look at what's what what the firm's done in Laguardia. I was just thinking and, LGA. And, you know, <laughs> you that was uh, there was nowhere to go but up. No, <laughs> I, I have been in better airports in so many third world countries. Yeah. Much better, much yeah. much nicer airports than Laguardia. I, I can't think of a time that I didn't go to Laguardia and go, Oh my God, what are yeah. they doing here? Yeah. So anyway, what does that say about an area? They had other priorities, yep. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Until they were shamed into doing it, so yay. <laughs> well, and now, I mean, it was I was just there a couple of weeks ago. It's gorgeous. Yeah. I, I well, mean, night and day difference. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. It's fantastic. Are there yeah. design principles that transcend sectors? Like, there's oh best sure, practices. absolutely. Oh no, 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 absolutely, absolutely. The sectors, the sectors is a convenient way to run a practice. In okay. a convenient way to to shore up your expertise and and deliver the best message to buyers, to clients. That's the whole benefit of a sector. Got it. Beyond that, uh, there are so many things that have to do with the human condition mm-hmm. that don't care what the building is really. It just doesn't matter. Uh, and so, yeah, those are the inter- those are the uh, I'll call it the universal issues of design. And they apply to able body and, and uh, uh, disabled people with difficulties and disabilities as well as, you know, all able body, uh, body people. And so, uh, you know, those transcend all the sectors. And I think, too, the other thing you have to know about, you just have to think about architecture, and this is the way I think about architecture, I always have it. It isn't about the object. It isn't about its place in history or its influences it's about the experience Mm -hmm. that it imparts and then you just ask yourself a simple set of questions uh did i make a good impression did i make it easier for people to use this facility and do whatever it might have been that they needed to do uh was it 
you know, is it a place they want to return to again mm. and again and again? Again, the corporate condition. Right. Wouldn't you like to think that you'd get up in the morning and want to go to sure. work in a big, bad way? I mean, like really want to be there? So, uh, you know, I, I tell people all the time, at least in that space, that uh, their biggest expense is not the building at all. It's the people that work there. Mm. And I think now more than ever, the power of place, the power of making that a great, memorable place has never been more important. Uh, you know, when we've all discovered how to work in a dispersed way. Right. All in, all in our bedrooms or dining rooms or what have you. Sure. I, I think that uh, I think everyone's kind of figured out by now how that falls short. Yeah. Compared to the cohesiveness, the collaboration and so on and so forth. For sure. Of being in a place. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, human experience is universal. Uh, the human, you know, and, and Hugo and, and we are going to do more work on this in the coming months, actually, uh, about thinking of, of common experiences, you know, a set of common responses to common spaces, you know, just as a validated scientific method as opposed to just a empirical or uh you know just just trial and error and common sense if you will looking back on the last 25 years or even the last 40 years of your career are there projects that stand out not necessarily as the biggest but ones that just really stick in your mind that you're really proud of oh yeah yeah what absolutely parkland hospital above and beyond all of them now why is that is it because a great big glassy box no is it because it's you know one of the largest hospitals that's been done in the western hemisphere no it's none of that it has nothing to do with that it has to do with its its critical success in the press and in, and in the profession and and also and, and that wasn't me saying so Right. And also, uh, just because it was a building that was so singularly focused and dedicated to the mission, its mission, as opposed to being a, a work of some one person's ego. Because I can tell you with no qualms within the client side, there were no egos involved in it. There were a lot of debating and, you know, all, but as the architects, uh, as, a, as a good and cohesive team, you know, our ideas prevailed, and I think they proved up. So that's one. Uh, I'm super proud of the work we did in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. My grandparents lived in Sacramento, California all my life, so that was another town I was, at, I was visiting, yep. right? As a child uh, in California, the first place I ever went in California, which, yeah. you know, after Texas is the, the place I've spent most of my time, yeah. both in childhood and adulthood. And, uh, and then, I, you know, and then interesting, I, I'm, uh, you know, not that many people talked about it. We didn't really receive as much press for it as I would have liked, but Love Field. Mm. And, and the reason is, is because you live here. This is your town, sure, my town, absolutely. right? absolutely. And so people talk to you about it all the time. Hey, I, was, I love that. I love what you did there, you yeah. know? And so you hear, so it's always nice to get praise directly from somebody as opposed to to, you know, anybody writing yeah. good or bad things in the critical Well, and press. it's nice. I was there, uh, I guess my my family <laughs> flew in two nights ago from to Love Field, and my boys know that, you know, we, Corgan, worked on that project. Yeah. like, oh, this is Daddy's Airport. And I was yeah. like, well, not exactly yeah. Daddy's Airport. But, yeah. you know, it's something that, it, like you said, it's local. There's there's yeah. something there that's tangible about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, when, when I go with my girls and or any of my kids, yeah. On long on international trips through Terminal D, I always get this: yeah. Who designed this airport? Are we <laughs> are we ever gonna get you know? And they just do it on purpose. Yeah. 
I'm curious, you know, you, you talked a little about sometimes there being fatigue in doing the same kind of projects, um, especially if they're, if they're having to be done in a similar way. How do you deal with dry spells or just being creatively drained? That's just part of the process, but oh, yes, what do you do yeah. to keep yourself inspired? Oh, you know, things outside of work, frankly. I have never, ever in my, what, 40 years of doing this, really, I've never visualized anything, any solution that was at the core, okay, mm-hmm. of a solution that wasn't a building that was already somewhat preordained, you know, because there are those buildings that are preordained by, by typologies, by, you know, by precedent. Sure. And then there are those where you have a true, genuine, creative opportunity to, to do something unique because mm-hmm. that's hard and it's rare. But I have never actually succeeded in that end by trying to do it. Now, that makes no sense, does it, yeah. right? <laughs> it's counterintuitive. <laughs> it's kind of like, well, I was sitting at my drawing table staring at a blank piece of paper. Right. And I was like, oh, what's it going to be? No, yeah. ne- never, ever once does it happen that way. So uh, the way to be creative is to get out of your, your fixed, rigid setting. Go walk around the park. Get in your car, although that's not the best because it's distracting. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, you know, of course, who's paying attention to driving these days? Anyway, uh, or, or or you know, go out in the garden. Yeah. Uh, take a walk in the woods. Uh, you know, I I collect plants. Go out and fiddle around in the greenhouse. Go paint. I yeah. paint. So I do things beyond what you know this work gig. And it's in those moments, it's in those times when I least expect it and I'm not trying, that's when I get those ideas. And, and it's just, uh, now, of course, you're, you're primed and ready. Right. I'm going to, okay, I'm doing this, but I'm also, you know, I'm working. Right. And this is the most serious side of work. Because doing the drawing, that's, that's for me, I mean, for a lot of people, that's just, yeah, I got to do that. And it's going to be from A to Z and I'll be finished. But that's just going to take a few minutes right. by comparison to, well, what am I doing? What's sure. that drawing about? And then you start the process of iterating and reiterating. You know, once you get the germ of the strong idea, and if it's a really strong diagram and a really strong idea, usually if you're, you know, after a while you get good at this, right. you don't need to just kill it and iterate it to death. It's just going to be clear. And that clarity that clarity of purpose and reasoning and rationale behind it, that's what separates good architecture from either generic or poor work. Where do you, where is your passion for the design process rooted? Where, where do you think that comes from? I don't know. I don't know. I, like I told you in the beginning of this talk, I always wanted to be an architect. So that's kind of like asking somebody, you know, did a you, fundamental question, yeah. you know, why are you... A, why are you breathing? <laughs> why are you male? Why are you uh, from Texas? I just was. Did you yeah. ever... Was there ever a chance of you doing anything else or was just no. always been architect? No, no, not a, not a prayer. No yeah. way. Uh-uh. Is, there a, is there a story or a project or an environment that you haven't created that you really want to? Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. What's on the bucket list? Oh, well... I don't worry about that too much, but <laughs> but I, I I I really would have loved to do an art museum, mm. yeah, because I love art. Mm-hmm. I have spent countless hours at the great art museums yep. in the world, right? I've been all over the world and 
and that's always something, at least in big cities, I seek out is, you know, what is the great art museum or museums? Go check out their collection, you know, what have you. So, yeah, that would, that would have been a really great one to do. Uh, I never even got close to one, of the, you know, in terms mm. of an opportunity. Yeah. I suppose in our role now, and given the scale and the stature of our firm, being in an associative relationship with an architect in that regard would be something that's possible. Mm-hmm. It's just that there's been such a spate of construction of art museums that occurred 10 years back, going back 30 years. Yeah. I don't know who needs one now. Fair <laughs> Frankly, yeah. it's kind of it's a saturated market. But yeah, that's one for sure. Is there? I I, I um, was in London a couple of months ago for helping with a project, and the Tate Modern is just one that just stands out. Like any time I have a chance, been there. I really got to go. Is there, I haven't is there been to London that, since '08. I gotta go to London. I'm gonna go next summer. Is there is there a museum that stands out that's like one of your favorites? Oh, too many to name. Well, the Kimball. Mm. I mean, that's immediate, yeah. right? Because that's a that's a unique and seminal building that might have actually been a catalyst for a tremendous renaissance in art museums, but not another one ever did it as well mm. as that. I think the East Wing of the National Gallery is phenomenal. Uh, you know, I could we could do another we talk. A whole on, list. <laughs> we could do another square on this if you wanna, but it's going to get real thick and academic. It, it would need to be illustrated. So I know that it was always <laughs> architecture for you, but is there anything you wish you'd done differently along your career? Oh yeah, how about every other week? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. I'm. Huh, I I think that it you know differently in your career. I really could only do what I've done mm. in, in the sense that being the designer, the you know, the creative person at the center of a beginning of a project is where I'm best suited. There are a lot of architects who go through their careers and, you know, they're all brainwashed and trained in college to be designers. But this, but the real fact is not everybody will be. Right. Okay. You may have this burning desire, but not the, but not the necessary or foundational talent. So... They're all running firms or they're being managers and wishing they had created the, you know, the Pritzker Prize winning project or something along those lines. Uh, That happened. That's common in this profession. I don't suffer from any of that because I've had, I've probably had a couple of careers compared to a lot of people I know. Now, obviously, you know, you've got organizations uh, that we work with mm-hmm. that just design buildings they don't do production they just design buildings they run design studios they're very creatively oriented uh, i've visited zaha Hadid's office foster's office uh, there's of course genie gang of chicago yep, for sure. uh, you know all these folks and they are running a different sort of organization it feels much more like being in college uh, so I value my personal time. Fair enough, yeah. I, I value, you know, that downtime. And, and as I said, without it, I don't think I could do my job, frankly, because the ideas come from, from somewhere that's, you know, not so deliberate. So yeah. along that lines, what's something that you love to do that has nothing to do with architecture, even oh. though it may be cause for inspiration, but what's something oh, that... Oh, it's, oh I, it's all my gardening and my gardening. plants and my... And travel. Now, travel's been a little bit weird, obviously. Yeah, for the last couple of years. I mean, you years. know, people yeah. go places, but, uh, and I have, but not like I usually do. So that's yeah. been kind 
kind of a drag, truthfully. Uh, but yeah, but I've got a big greenhouse too, actually two greenhouses in the backyard and I go in there and I just kind of fiddle with my plants and I'm very good at it. I have too many, you know, <laughs> they, if you're good at it, you yeah. just get more, more you get more, more you, you just get add. more. And so, you know, that's my therapy. I would always say that's my therapy. And then the other thing is painting. I, I started painting again in in 17 and uh, probably done 20 canvases of various scales and sizes of all kinds of subjects. But, you know, it's just fun to do things with your hands because the operation of architecture now with the computer involved, mm -hmm. it devalues the hand. Uh, well, I shouldn't say it that way. It definitely it changes it. <laughs> well, you know, in a practice, so many younger people, they don't draw at all. All they can do is manipulate the computer, which is fine because it's a powerful, fast tool. I don't know if it has as much soul mm. uh, in it when it comes to the origination of, of ideas. Uh, but then I'm old school in that regard, right? Yeah. And, and you know, honestly, if you look at a lot of, of really, really accomplished architects, they will all show these very abstract, crude, generational ideas toward the final solution if you just study that. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting to see the process and how it plays out in different places. Tell me, we'll switch gears here for a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. your wife, Lynn, your yeah. kids, you, they're, they're all, you know, have, are very creative. How do you foster Probably. that creativity in, in a family culture? <laughs> you, you, they couldn't help it. Mm. Yeah, they couldn't help it. My house is full of my own and Lynn's paintings. I have a few from other people, mm -hmm. right, photographs, some other stuff we've collected with no more space on the walls <laughs> so yeah so now they just pile up in the studio but uh they were immersed in it as children as infants they could go out out in the backyard any day in Lynn's studio and watch her making yeah. things every single day now me i never did that where i mean okay once in a while i'd come home and do things on the dining room table right sure and usually when I was doing things on the dining room table, the kids were elsewhere because that was a request. Hey, yeah. <laughs> could you guys, you know, daddy go get ice work. cream for three hours? <laughs> or could you, yeah, daddy's big. But I, I generally would come to the office. That was a rare instance if I had to watch the kids or something. So with their mother, anyway, they were constantly engaged and, and aware of the process of just ever didn't everybody's mom go out in the back and just make <laughs> stuff all day long you know because yeah. that's what that's what they were immersed in and then we drug them to art museums and cultural institutions and i mean in some cases drug them kicking and screaming <laughs> uh, but they're all just completely uh immersed and aware of that you know two of my children went to the arts <clears throat> went to the arts magnet high school uh, one of them went to the Tag High School here mm -hmm. in Dallas. They were all very academically accomplished or artistically accomplished. My youngest daughter is an architect, licensed architect now in California. She just got that a few weeks ago. That's so awesome. that yeah, right. Yeah. So congratulations. So to her. that happened, and I, I wish her a you know a life of less misery. <laughs> oh, but, As every father probably you know, does. <laughs> but living in California, and I, well, whatever. I'm sure she'll figure it out. Yeah. But but anyway, yeah, very proud of that. And and yeah, they're all in some level of creative pursuit. Um. Let's talk a little bit more about the profession. How is it, you know, to your to your almost forty years of experience? How has it changed since 
oh, since it started. And immensely. It's changed immensely. Uh, it, and, and a lot of it does revolve around technology. So, mm-hmm. you know, just to put it in perspective, when I, when I first started my career in doing these simple stage set, you know, buildings that I was doing, uh, we would design one by hand, all drawn, all hand drawings in two weeks, let's say three weeks max. And then we'd finish the production on it in another six weeks. So nine weeks, maybe, give or take, mm-hmm. 10, 12 weeks, maybe longer if it's a really big project. And, and you, you drew the, these things, you know, every line on a piece of paper with your hands. And, and this was even before pin bar drafting yeah. and other things came in that were efficiency measures. But uh, we can do that sort of work now in so much less time due to BIM. Yeah. CAD. So the technology has condensed our, you know, our investment in time. And in a way, it's given us more time to work on the front end and organize our thoughts better before we go into, you know, so the, so the, 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 the workflow has shifted more to the front end and not so much in the middle of the project during construction documents like it was when I, you know, we were all doing everything via analog. Yeah. Yeah. And also our ability to visualize things. I mean, as you all well know, since you're our collaborators and creators on the imaging that we sure. do, yeah. uh, you know, that we can do things in a miraculous amount of time. Literally, you know, I look at it every day and it's just, it's just astounding yeah. what, what we're able to do. So that's tremendous. And then, of course, construction technology has changed somewhat. It's still very much the same as it has been. I mean, things get better yeah. from, a, from a durability. And, and then, of course, the whole issue of sustainability and energy conservation and performance in buildings, we never talked about that yeah. at all. Um, I mean, the, the issue was at hand, right, uh, with the environment and what we all knew we were doing to the environment a very long time ago. Knowing and acting on it are two different things. Sure. So, yeah, those things have changed tremendously. How do you think the firm has changed over the last oh, 25 my God. years? It's like a whole other place. I mean, <laughs> I'll tell you what hasn't changed, though. I mean, you know, again, it's along the same lines, right? And, and forget the scale and the billings and the, you know, all of that. that, that that's been on a, on a fairly steady uh, upward incline in this organization. I think why that's the case is because we're very honest brokers. Mm. We're very trustworthy people. We instill that in everybody who works for us. Uh, we want to represent our clients' needs and interests very honestly and, and just be there. You know, if we mess up, we'll take care of it. Uh, we don't like to be taken advantage of, but on the other hand, you know, we're there to serve a client. And I think the delivery of, of good service is also done via really outstanding design. So those things are all symbiotic. And I think the core, you know, just the core of, of the, uh, the kind of the, the ethos and the culture of this organization is the strength of this organization. And I, and I hope that prevails. I think it's fantastic. Just a couple of years ago, you became a fellow uh, with yeah, AIA. It's, it's longer than a couple of years now. About is, yeah, seven. Is it seven? Yeah, okay. fifteen. How? How? What has that meant to you? 
Oh, it's nice. It's a great honor to get. Uh, it was a bit of a grind to get there, you know, just through portfolio submissions and jurors and all these things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was mostly just very grateful and humble to be nominated in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of historically been a good old boys club. Um, I, I, I think that the membership of the of the college of fellows is starting to reflect society better mm. now that's conscious that's been an ongoing uh activity within the aia and uh you know it opens you i'll tell you what it's done though besides just feeling nice about it and proud about it uh, it opens up a network of people that mm. are accessible to you that may not have been before mm. If we want to collaborate, it's easy for me to pick up a telephone and call somebody and they will answer my, or they will call back. Right. You know, they won't just, you know, if you've got this credential and you're all part of a really very, very, very small club. Sure. Uh, I think everybody treats one another quite, quite well there. At least that's been my experience to date. And I think it served the, our firm quite yeah. nicely as well, you know, in some of our collaborations. What are some things that excite you about the future of architecture? Oh, excite me about the future. Oh, excitement. Is it excitement or is it? There can be concerns. You know, (laughs) I, uh, uh, well, I look at everything as an opportunity. You know, you gotta be, if you're not optimistic, you should do something else for a living. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, What excites me is the opportunity to somehow leverage our creative strengths and technology to really overcome what's a problem in the in the cost of construction Mm. i mean if you look at the global population there are maybe a billion people on planet earth that live in substandard housing Mm. that they you know that they scrape together with whatever available things laying around right and the reason they do that is because they live in countries that don't have supply chains, that don't have an industrial output. And I think we have got to solve that problem because we have too many people in the world that are living in, in misery. Mm-hmm. So affordable construction. I won't just say affordable housing. I'm literally talking about everything. It is, you know, and maybe, maybe the economy will settle out. You know, once we get past the pandemic, you know, uh, the shock of the pandemic. Sure. But it's still, you know, predictably going to cost more to build anything. Right. And I just think we've got to come up with ways to take that pressure off because we need so much. Uh, We need to replace building stock in every city in the world so that they're more performative from an energy perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have millions of buildings that just leak heat out into the environment and we've got to fix that uh, but at the cost of replacement now it's it's not just a walk in the park sure. so that's what's that's a huge concern i have that i think that if we're if we're really smart about it it, it could become a tremendous opportunity well and there has been it's, it seems like there's been a much more of a, a focus and an awareness of sustainability 
from an aspect beyond, do I get to save money on energy? <laughs> oh no, it's it's way more than that. It's way it's so complicated. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not just energy. I mean, that's that's the easiest one to measure, frankly. Right, sure. But I think it's not sustainable to only be able to afford to build something if you're super wealthy. Right. Is that sustainable? No, absolutely. I, I don't think so. Yeah. And and so yeah, I mean. We have to get back to the core utility of why, you know, mankind built in the first place. Sure. And and uh, maybe reestablish ways to get there. Final question. Mm. Uh, you know, there's through the the design program at Corrigan, there's a lot of people um, that are you know pursuing that track. I'm curious, what yeah. are the what's the What's the words of advice, whether it's something you wish someone had told you early on or something that you have for them Oh yeah. in, in terms of how they progress, not just in their career, but as a designer? And oh, architect. don't wait for permission. Mm. Don't wait for permission. That's a good one. <laughs> don't wait for permission. I think a lot of young people are looking for permission, and then they want a participation trophy. I know this having raised four kids that were looking for, you know. Yeah. And then I, and I told them, all four of my kids, just don't wait for permission. And there will be no participation trophy. <laughs> just do it. Just, yeah. you know, just do it. Get out and do it. And uh, well, what does that mean? You know, go ask questions. Be curious. Be curious. Be inquisitive of what your neighbors are doing. You know, if you're working in interiors, go see what your buddies in the schools team are up to. If you're working in aviation, go see what the corporate folks are doing. Get out of your sector from an awareness perspective. And it's back to you know, the question in our conversation about well, what's common between mm -hmm. these things. More things than we can possibly talk about. And so I think that the, the firm's strength lies in the solidification of the sectors, but also the cross-pollination of ideas and, and truths in, in architecture as they apply to anything. Mm -hmm. And our groups within the advocates and our design council have conversations on a monthly basis that just solidify these things. And it's been great. It's been enriching. And it also creates an esprit de corps and friendships within that cohort mm -hmm. that I think are super important. So, yeah, don't wait for permission. That, that's my advice. Chuck, thank you so much for sitting down with us. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for watching or listening, depending on how you're uh, absorbing this podcast, and make sure to check us out next time.